Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. That's as far as we're going to get tonight. Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. That's as far as we're going to get tonight in this passage. And so what I want you to understand is, as Jesus continues His Sermon on the Mount, He now goes into a little bit more detail about what He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. If you go back to Matthew 5 and look at verse 20, he had already said in the Sermon on the Mount earlier, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you remember, uh, Jesus has been trying to show them their sin. And now he's saying, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the Pharisees' righteousness, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we've already talked about the fact that the reaction of the, of the Jews would be, then who in the world's going to go to the kingdom of heaven if you can't if you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees? But now he goes into a little bit more detail about that. And actually, as you're about to see in this passage, he's referring to the Pharisees when he starts talking about doing your deeds of righteousness to be seen by men. Uh, put a bookmark here in Matthew 6 and go with me to Matthew chapter 23. You see, the people of Israel saw the Pharisees as the highest level of righteousness. But it was mainly because the Pharisees did their quote-unquote righteousness in order to be seen. Listen to Matthew 23, verses 1 through 15. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The, past, the, sorry, the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now, before I go on to the next section of passage in, here in Matthew 23, listen to what he's saying. He said the Pharisees were hypocrites. They do everything they do to be seen by others, but not only were they hypocrites, because they were doing everything they do to be seen by others, and they were convincing others that they were righteous and that they're going to heaven, and they're not. When they go and make a proselyte or a convert to follow them and to live like them, they've made that person twice a child of hell than they were. What, does anybody know what that means? How, how, what, why does Jesus say you've made this person twice a child of hell that, than, that you are? Here's why. Because not only were the Pharisees not going to heaven, because they're putting their faith in their own righteousness. And you hopefully know 
that our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's nothing we can do to be right before God. He gives it to us, and we're going to talk about that tonight. But not only were they not going, they, in their religious position, were telling people, you're going. So now you got people who have been told by the religious leader, you're forgiven. You're going to heaven when they're not. And so they're twice as much a child of hell as the Pharisees. You know why? Because even more so now, they're not going to be convicted of their own sin. Because the Pharisees said I was okay. Folks, that's why I've always been real careful not to tell someone, you're going to heaven. Because the only one that knows is the individual and God himself. I can show you the way to get to heaven through faith in Christ, and we're going to talk about that in detail tonight. But at the same time, it's not up to me to say, you're going to heaven. You'll hear me say, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God will keep his word and his promise. But only you know whether or not you fully trusted in him. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more tonight. Go to Matthew 23 and look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin, and you have neglected the weightier or the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now let me say something to you real quick before we move on. Don't think for a second you know where someone's heart really is. The only one that knows is God. Don't put yourself in a position ever to think, well, I think that person's a phony. You don't know. The, Jesus is teaching them to not look at man, but to put their eyes where? On God. Why does he want them to put their eyes on God? Well, when they put their eyes on God, God's going to be able to talk to them about who? Their brother or themselves? How many times have you ever heard someone after a church service going, man, I wish Bob was here to hear that. He really needed that. You might have said it yourself. Well, it's so easy for us to assume that we know what someone needs, especially when it comes to whether or not they're righteous or not. You want to save yourself a lot of trouble? Stop judging people's motives. Well, they're only doing that because they fill in the blank. Be careful. They might not be doing things that they ought, but you don't know their motives for why. Sometimes their hearts may be in the right place, but they're ignorant. We need to deal with people's actions, not their motives and their hearts. Only God knows their hearts. And tonight, as we deal with this term hypocrite, I want you to let God speak to you about yourself. Don't let your brain go to anybody else. You stay and let God speak to you. The term hypocrite, by the way, you see in this passage is used to describe someone who's lost, unsaved. All through this passage, it was very clear. He's calling the Pharisees hypocrites, and they're a child of hell, and they're doomed to hell. So now let me also say this to you. We may act hypocritically at times, but hopefully we're not hypocrites. You understand the difference? 
The term hypocrite, by the way, comes from uh, the Greek theater. It describes someone who wore a mask. If you know anything about the Greek theater, all the thespians in the Greek theater typically were men. And so when they would play roles, even if they were women, they would hold a mask in front of their face. And they wore them to appear to allow people to see them as something they're not. And so the hypocrites that Jesus is talking about are people that God has revealed to them that they're not who they pretend to be, but they're still more interested in what other people think about them than what God thinks, and they're putting on a mask. Folks, let me just say, I pray there's no one in here tonight that's a hypocrite, that you put on a mask to fake people out, to make you think you're something you're not. Oh, if there is someone here that the Spirit of God is convicting, I pray that you'll listen to what God's telling you and humble yourself and be willing to acknowledge your need. We're going to talk about, that again, that in great detail. Go back to Matthew chapter 6 now and reread this with me in verses 1 through 4 and listen to the word hypocrite again now. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We're going to talk about that reward and everything at the end of our study tonight. I want you to remember that Jesus has been trying to reveal the depths of man's sinfulness so that they will turn to God for their righteousness. A righteousness that can only be given to us from God. Because the law demands perfection. We've already laid that out in the early part of the Sermon on the Mount. The law demands perfection, and none of us are perfect. And the only way we can become righteous is if God declares us righteous and just gives it to us as a gift. But I'm going to ask you a question tonight then. First off, would you agree with the statement that I just made? That the law demands perfection, and there's no one that's perfect. And the only way you can be righteous before God is if God just declares you righteous and gives it to you as a gift. Correct? Well, here's the question then. How can God give us righteousness and simply declare us righteous when the law demands perfection, when His holiness demands perfection? How can God just declare you righteous? Yes, Jesus. You see, to simply ignore the law would be to lower God's standards and therefore lessen His holiness. When God declares you and I righteous, he's not ignoring the law. He's not going to say, yeah, yeah, I know you broke a few of them, but I'm just going to just say that you're okay. No, to do so would lower his holiness and he would cease to be God. He has to have a way to be able to declare us righteous, yet at the same time have all the legal, righteous, holy demands of the law met. And I'm pretty sure most of you know this, but I'm just going to share with you the gospel tonight. Go to John chapter 5. Now, I'm laying this gospel foundation for a reason. And I pray there's no one here tonight that thinks, well, I just hope you don't treat the gospel that I'm about to share with you the same way I treat the stewardesses when they start to uh, give the safety instructions in the airport or in the airplane. And by the way, I just said stewardess. That shows you how old I am. Flight attendants. But, you know, when I first started flying, I, man, I paid such close attention when they brought those safety instructions out. Where are the exits? 
But now when I get on a plane because I've flown so much, as soon as they get up to do their little song and dance, I just go to sleep. I've heard it. I know it. But you know, there's an old hymn called, I Love to Tell the Story. To those who know it best, for they seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Then it goes on and talks about how it seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. My prayer is, as I share with you how God can declare us righteous here from the scriptures, that you'll sit there and allow God to make the truth of this sink even more into your heart. In John chapter 5, listen to verses 39 and 40. He's talking to the Pharisees and he's talking to the Jews. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me, Jesus said. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Go to Romans chapter 3. These people thought they were righteous because they were reading the word of God and trying to do what it said. There may be some people here listening tonight that think they're righteous because they try to do what it says. Romans chapter 3, listen to verses 19 and following. We go all the way to verse 31. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We've been dealing with that all through the early part of the Sermon on the Mount. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded, it's removed. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Well, how do we uphold the law if we're not being judged by the law anymore? And we've, as we looked at earlier, we've been set free from the law and we've received righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ by grace. How do we uphold the law? It's through that faith in Jesus Christ that we uphold the law. Here's why. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. You're in chapter 3. Jump over to chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 9. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. When it talks about living by the flesh, it's not meaning that you do fleshly things, which we all still do. When it means to live by the flesh, that means you are putting your faith in your flesh, your ability, your own righteousness to make you right before God. I've asked many of people over the years as I travel the country and I meet people for the first time in churches. And I ask people that are quote unquote Christians, people that claim to be Christians. People that have been church members for years, and I'll say, if you die today, would you go to heaven? And they'll say, I believe I would. And I'll say, that's awesome. How do you know? And many times, too many times, I hear someone say, well, I believe in Jesus, and I've lived a good life. They put their faith in Jesus a little and in themselves a little. Did the Bible say that we are saved by faith alone in who? And Jesus Christ, and we put no confidence in our own ability to be right before God. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're in Romans. Turn over to 2 Corinthians, two books, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Again, we're asking this question, how do we uphold the law? Here's how we uphold the law. For our sake, God made him, this is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was put on Jesus at the cross. Did Jesus ever sin? Then how did he become sin? Right, but how did he, the Bible says he became sin. How did Jesus become sin if he never sinned? I heard it. God put it on him. Did you catch that? The Bible word is it was imputed to him. God put sin, our sin, on Jesus. Oh, he became sin. He never sinned. But God put our sin on him and he became sin so that we can become what? His righteousness. Uh, by the way, has anybody here been righteous in and of themselves? Anybody here perfect before God, never sinned ever? Oh, let me ask you this question. Is anybody here righteous right now in the eyes of God? Anybody that can erase? Hopefully all of you can say yes. If not, don't leave this place without saying yes. But how are you righteous if you've not been righteous? His righteousness was imputed to you. We're not ignoring the law, folks. It's, being, it's been met. The legal righteous demands, holy demands of the law have been met by Jesus. And I'm righteous before God, not because I've been good, but because Jesus was righteous and Jesus was sinless. And God took my sin and the sin of the world and put it on him. And for those who would believe that what Jesus did will cover them, God will declare you righteous. God did by Jesus what you and I could not do. Go to Colossians chapter 2. 
Look at verses 6 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. By the way, how did you receive Jesus? By faith. So how do we walk in Him on a daily basis? By faith that He who began the good work will finish it. By faith that it's He's the author and the perfecter or the finisher of our faith. By faith that God is the one who's going to declare me righteous and keep me righteous. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before himself with great joy and holy and blameless. We daily have our faith that Jesus who started this is the one who's going to finish it. But unfortunately, many Christians have been told, all right, he saved you, but now you've got to live a good life in order to be right before God. No. That good life, he wants it to be manifest. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more tonight. But it's not manifested by you trying harder. It's never going to be manifested by you to trying to do a better job. It's not going to be manifested by you walking an aisle and crying and saying, God, I'm going to do better. God, I'm going to try harder. God, I promise I'll do. Has anybody ever prayed one of those prayers before? I have many times in my life. By the way, how did it work out for you? How'd you do? Yeah, maybe a week. If you're lucky. We who have received Jesus by Lord, our Lord by faith, need to walk in him that way on a daily basis, trusting in him to finish what he started. Keep reading. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity, God, dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him, in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh, thank God, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Folks, I hope you understand that you are righteous because God has made you righteous and declared you righteous because of Jesus and Him alone. And that same way that He started it is how you're to live on a daily basis. But unfortunately, because the Bible does talk about righteous living after salvation, so the world will see that they were God's children, many of us try to put on the facade of righteous living. We don't want to acknowledge that we still struggle with sin. Even though we've been set free from sin and His power, we we still struggle with it. And So what I want to show you tonight is let's go back to our Matthew passage now. I've laid this foundation of the gospel out as as a foundation so you can hopefully see that Jesus is moving the focus from us and our sin to God and His power. You see, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, He's been dying to show them the depth of their sin. 
Because they were taught, if you're good, you're righteous. Well, he's going to say, you think you're good? I'm going to show you you haven't kept the law here. You think you're okay in this area with, with adultery? Let me tell you how you haven't kept the law there. You think you're okay in this area of uh, murder? Let me show you how you haven't kept the law here with anger. And so on. And he's been showing them the depth of their sin. But now he's going to be in this section of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, moving their focus from themselves and their sin to God and His power. See, the Pharisees did their righteousness to be seen by others. Look at Matthew chapter 6 again, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. You're going to find out later on in our study, this passage is not teaching that you should never let anybody see your righteousness. This, and I'm going, to, I'm going to show you from passage of Scripture some things that actually go against what you and I have been taught all our lives. This passage is not saying that you should never let anybody see you do righteous acts. You should keep them a secret. Don't let anybody know. You ever heard that kind of teaching from this passage? I'm going to show you from Scripture that's not what it's saying. He's saying the righteous acts that you are doing, that God wants to be seen. Doesn't the Bible say they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another and by your fruit and by the righteous life that Christ is living through us? The war, he wants the world to see our righteousness. Don't do your righteousness in order to be seen by others. Don't have that be the reason why you're doing it. So the Pharisees did their righteousness to be seen by others, and many people were very impressed. But God wasn't. Where's God looking? Is He looking at our outward actions? Where's He looking? He's looking at our hearts. Put a bookmark here in Matthew. Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. First Samuel 16, really not hard to find. It's right in front of 2 Samuel. First Samuel 16, look at verses 6 and 7. When he came, or when they came, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When God had sent Samuel to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel, and Jesse had brought all except one of his sons to be brought before Samuel, and the first one shows up, and he looked really impressive. We might even have made him chairman of deacons. God says, I've rejected him because his heart's not where it's supposed to be. His heart's not where it's supposed to be. But God, he's a big giver. His heart's not where it's supposed to be. God, he works the hardest. He's here all the time. Every time the doors are open, he's committed, Lord. But his heart's not where it's supposed to be. Go to John chapter 2. Look at verses 23 through 25. In John chapter 2, verse 23 and following, John 2, 23. Now when he, this is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You remember when... Jesus sat there in the upper room right before the cross that last night 
and he said to his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. Every single one of them said what? Well, except one. Said what? Who? Who? Is it me? Who is it? They had no clue. Oh, by the way, prior to this, Jesus had sent them all out two by two. So somebody got paired up with Judas. And they all came back talking about how they were able to cast out demons and preach in his name. And we don't see anywhere in the scriptures where someone says, Hey, Jesus, can I talk to you for a second on the side? You know how you sent me out there with Judas? He couldn't do this stuff. He could. And when it came time for Jesus to say, One of you is going to betray me, they didn't all say, We know who it is. They had no idea. And folks, you can fool people, but you can't fool God. He knows your heart. The heart that God's looking for is not one that's impressed with himself and wants others to be impressed too. The heart that God will reward is a heart that understands their brokenness and looks to God for his righteousness. Let me say that to you again. The heart that God is looking for, the heart that God rewards, is a heart that understands their brokenness, their need of a Savior, not only for salvation to begin, but understands daily their need of Jesus to do what He promised He'll do, or else the world won't see what's happened to us. Do you understand what I'm saying? And God's looking for brokenness and humility. Go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, look at verses 16 and 17. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. David writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now we're going to go back to the beginning of this chapter in just a second. But if you read your little heading at the beginning of this chapter, you realize this David wrote after he had sinned with Bathsheba. And by the way, if you know anything about that story about him sitting with Bathsheba, it was a whopper. He didn't just commit adultery by sleeping with somebody else's wife. He got her pregnant. And then... Got the husband drunk in hopes that he'd stumble home and cover up his sin, because back then there wasn't DNA testing to find out who the real daddy was. Maury Povich didn't have his show at that time. And then when the man wouldn't stumble home and sleep with his wife and cover up David's sin, he had him put to death. And then he took this lady Bathsheba to be his wife. And when Nathan the prophet came and told the story about this wicked man who had done this thing and told the story similar to David's, David's anger was at that man. That man should die. And David then realized what he had done. And he wrote this psalm. And in verses 16 and 17, David's response to God is, you don't want me to do some kind of outward act to make this okay. You don't want me to write a big check. You don't want me to do penance. You don't want me to do something to be right before you. Some of you have been taught that if you do penance, you can be right before God. No, nothing you do will make you right before God. He's looking for a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's what you won't despise. 
Now go back to Psalm 51. Look at verses 1 through 12. David was called, what? A man after God's own heart. Was David sinless? No, David was messed up as you and me, folks. Well, I wouldn't say worse. Be careful about saying worse. Because, but for the grace of God, there go I. But if we think we're more righteous than somebody else, we're in trouble. Go to Psalm 51, look at verses 1 through 12. Look what David writes. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Folks, David, when he realized his sin, by the way, there was a period where he was clueless to it. He was numb to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He had a hard heart. But when God was able to break through and to show him where he really was and how God saw him, he repented. He was willing to say, I was wrong. He didn't like Adam say, it's this woman. He didn't like Eve say, it was the snake. He didn't like many of us say, well, the only reason I do that is because I was raised in a bad neighborhood. I had bad parenting. It's really not my fault. No, David says, I had sin problem from the moment I was born. It's passed on to me, and I'm a sinner just like everybody else. By the way, do you know that Paul saw himself in that way finally? Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a hypocrite. Paul was trying to appear to be something that he wasn't. And one day, Jesus got a hold of him. And Jesus showed him the depth of his sin. And listen to how Paul describes himself. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. 
to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Folks, Paul continued to understand his need of a Savior. It's been interesting. Years ago, a preacher did a series of messages, and he, in one of the messages that I heard, walked us through Paul's writings from the earliest book he wrote until the last. And it starts off with him saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to him ending up and saying, I'm the chief of sinners. The more he walked with Jesus, the more he understood the grace of Jesus. Folks, thank God he gave me righteousness. I got saved at eight years old. And people would look at my life on the outward side and they said, Jim, you really never done any of the real bad stuff. I was a virgin when I got married. I've never had a drink. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never taken a drug. And people would look at me and they say, Jim, you, you're a good guy. Man, I know the things I still struggle with in my heart and in my flesh. I thank God he saved me at eight years old. I don't even want to try to imagine who I'd be if he didn't save me when I was a kid. I thank God. And folks, I don't want any of you to say, well, I'm just nobody. I'm just a low-down sinner. No, no, no. That's not what we want, false humility. I want just to acknowledge that apart from God's grace, you're nothing. But because of his grace and because of his righteousness, you now can live in your new nature I'm not trying to be crude here, but most of us are old enough to handle this. You know what circumcision is, right? Circumcision is when you take the foreskin and you cut the flesh and do what with it? Do, do you put it in a frame and hang it on the wall? No, you cut the flesh and you throw it away. When you and I were saved, that flesh was removed. Through Jesus. Didn't we just read that in Colossians? We received the circumcision by Christ. Well, I still struggle with this flesh. Yes, we will until the day we die. But actually, it's, it sounds crazy. I think it's part of God's grace. Because it makes me realize on a daily basis my need to rely on Him. And I think I'd be a proud rascal if I didn't have the daily struggle that I still do with my flesh. I'm going to ask an honest question here this, mor this morning. Just tipped over how long. I tipped off how long I'm going to preach tonight. But no. Uh, how many of you, show of hands, would be willing to admit that even though you're saved, your flesh is still pretty powerful? Good. Remember that tomorrow morning when you wake up. And thank God for his grace. Not only that he saved you, but that he'll empower you to let the flesh no longer be in control, but the spirit be in control. Oh, and also, when you watch the news and read about these looters or these rapists and all this kind of stuff, that you won't sit there and think, those bad heathen people. Do you ever find yourself sometimes looking at a terrorist who's cutting people's heads off and think, man, I can't wait until they get what they deserve. Anybody, anybody else had that thought? Do you realize that most of your New Testament was written by a terrorist? You all know Paul was a terrorist. He was terrorizing the church, having them put to death because they didn't believe in the same way that he believed. But God loved him, and aren't we glad God loved him? Pray for the terrorists, that they would know God's grace. Pray for those who are sinners, that they would know God's grace. 
We never approve of their lifestyle. But we need to understand that just as Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And Stephen, as he was being put to death, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. The sad thing is the church today has forgotten the depth of our sin. Maybe we never realized how much sin God saved us from. Maybe we don't realize the power of God on a daily basis that he's using just to keep us. So Jesus tells us to do our acts of worship solely for God's attention and not for man's attention. If you're wanting man's attention and man's reward, you won't get any from God. But if you want God's attention and God's reward, do your acts of worship with a heart that is only concerned with his praise and pleasure. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to show you something that's been taught, I think, incorrectly for years. And I think I've been teaching it incorrectly for years. In Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees, also sees in secret, will reward you. I'm going to just warn you, beware of trying to turn Jesus' teaching here on giving into another law we have to keep. Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't pass the offering plate in our worship service because that would be letting people see us give. I've heard people say, Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When we pass the plate, people see who gives and who doesn't. You should never let, we, should, we shouldn't do it that way. We try to turn the teachings of Jesus into another law that we have to keep. Man, folks, stop trying to put the teachings of Jesus back into a law. Actually, he's speaking to the heart of why we give. Are we giving to please God or are we giving to impress men? Years ago, when Billy Graham, I heard this story years ago, Billy Graham was in a, a, a worship service that he was going to be speaking at at one point. And he was sitting there as they passed the plate. And when the plate went by, he put in a $10 bill. Wasn't planning on putting in a $10 bill. He thought he was putting in a five. When it left his hand and it hit the plate and the plate was leaving him, he realized, oh no, that was a 10. I meant it to be a five. So he reached back for it to get it. His wife, Ruth, slapped his hand and said, what are you doing? He goes, I meant to put in a five, not a 10. She said, don't worry, that 10's a five in the eyes of God now. <laughs> Actually, the Bible shows us that our heartfelt obedience to Christ in our giving can be an encouragement to others to trust God in their giving as well. Listen to me. We've been taught, don't let anybody see your giving. It's not what he was literally saying. He was saying, don't do your giving to be seen by men. He wasn't saying, don't let any men see your giving. Do you see the difference? He wasn't saying, don't let men see your giving. He was saying, don't do it to be seen. But there's nothing wrong with someone seeing your giving if your heart's in the right place. Let me show you from Scripture what I'm talking about. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. In 1 Chronicles 29, look at verses 1 through 9. And David, the king, said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. This is the building of the temple. 
For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, and the irons for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones and setting for antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, the 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the fathers' houses made their freewill offerings as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and hundreds and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and, and 10,000 derricks of gold and 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel, the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. David actually says, guys, I want you to be a part of this offering to help build the house of the Lord. I've already used my powers and my authority to gather up so much, but on top of that, I'm giving out of my own personal treasury this much, and I'm going to challenge you to pray about what God would have you give. Was David giving so they'd all say, wow, look at what David gave? No, but he was telling them so that they too would be inspired to give. Go to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 8. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, they also gave themselves first to the Lord, but then to the, by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so should he should also complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in all love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So again, Paul points out the Macedonians and said, let me just tell you, this was a poor area. And they gave, not only as they were able, but beyond their ability. And you need to be inspired by that. Were the people in Macedonia giving so that everybody would say, wow, look at the Macedonians? No, their heart was in the right place and they gave generously, but Paul didn't hide the fact. Go to chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, look at verses 1 and following. He says, now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. This is the offering he was collecting for the poor in Jerusalem. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we'd be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. 
So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God's able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Again, Paul keeps pointing out what everybody's giving. The passage of Jesus' teaching, don't let your right hand and let your left hand know what he's doing. If you look at the context, he's saying, don't do your giving to be seen by others. He wasn't saying, don't let your giving be seen by others. Actually, it's an encouragement to others when we act in faith as God's led us to walk in obedience and to live out the righteousness. Doesn't God want the, our righteous deeds to be seen by others. Didn't we already read that in Matthew chapter 5? Do your righteous deeds before men so that they may glorify your Father in heaven. Let me take you to one more passage. Go to Mark chapter 12. Look at verses 41 through 44. And he, this is Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. I thought Jesus wasn't supposed to be looking. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called to his, called to his disciples to, them, to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. If Jesus didn't want anybody to know what we give, why did he point out the widow's giving? Do you see it? He's teaching that our giving should be seen by others. But just make sure that when you do, it's not so that they'll be impressed. If your giving is generous because God has blessed you and you want to be generous, God knows the heart. Listen closely. And if you write a big check, but you did it so that others will be impressed by how much and how many zeros, you've already got your reward. You've already got your reward. But if your reason was just simply, God's been good, and I want to give, you'll, your reward may be stored up for you in heaven. He's watching, because he knows the secret he's talking about is where? Publicly versus not publicly? He who sees in secret, I hope you get this, because otherwise we got to go all the way back to Psalm 51. He who sees in secret, is he talking that the secret place is publicly versus not publicly? Or is the secret place right here in your heart? Exactly. 
When it says, he who sees in secret, he's looking at your heart. He's looking at your heart. Now, when we are generous, we are acting like our Heavenly Father. It will do the world good to see us act like our Father. Now, the question, and we'll wrap up with this tonight, is this. Jesus is teaching that we must examine our hearts when we give to others or when we do any of our righteousness. Are we doing it to please men or are we doing it to please God? Now, here's your question. We're, are we doing it to please men or to please God? That's not the question. The question is this. What pleases God? Actually, you'd think it would be obedience. Sacrifice, you'd think, would be the answer, but it's not. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. That's all right. I didn't expect you all to get a hundreds tonight on the test anyway. Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 6. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he what? rewards those who seek him. Does that word reward sound familiar? It was all through our passage tonight in Matthew 6. Listen closely. What God is looking for from you is obedience that comes from faith. Sacrifice, if he asks you to it, that comes from faith. The reason you do it is because God has said it, and you trust him, and you put your faith in what God has said, and you do your act of righteousness for God because you trust him. Lord, you've asked me to do this. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do it in hopes that the world will think I'm impressive. I'm not going to do it so I, that you'll think I'm impressive. I already know who I am. I'm not impressive. But if you want to glorify yourself through someone like me who's not impressive, as a preacher, it's very easy for us to try to put on this front that we're always spiritual. My wife even rolls her eyes a few times over the years because those of you that know me, I'm going to say stuff even from the pulpit that make you go, oh, Jim, why'd you go there? But you know what? I found out it's easier for me just to be me in the pulpit and out of the pulpit. I have a sister-in-law, and I might have shared this with you before. I have a sister-in-law named Carlene, my brother John's wife. She and I have this awesome antagonistic relationship in Christian love. And she said, Jim, I love to hear you preach because I know you. And when you preach, it's obviously not you. <laughs> because I don't like you. <laughs> and you know what? I hug her and say, that's the best thing you could ever say to me. That you know me and you see God work his righteousness through me. Folks, I hope that I never try to impress you. By the way, I almost did. Tonight at Wendy's before, like a bunch of us meet at Wendy's ahead of time, on my last bite, a piece of lettuce covered in mayonnaise hit my shirt. And my first thought was, we gotta hurry up and get there so I can wash it. And then I thought, no, this is who I am. And there's a bunch of us that probably have some of those, how many guys have the stain on their shirt? That's right, amen. I knew I shouldn't have had the lettuce, All right, but uh, some people say maybe the mayonnaise. But no, I just, what pleases God, folks? What pleases God is faith. 
I'm not going to take the time to take you to all these passages. But the Bible says that God rewards faith. He rewards faith. Write these down, and I want you to go take a look at these on your own. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. Matthew 6, 4, passage that we looked at tonight. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. As you look at those passages, they all say about the same thing. Great is your reward in heaven. Your reward will be great. So, he knows your heart and why you do what you do. And if you do it because you're trusting him and he said it and you're trusting him in faith. Remember, faith doesn't begin with you. You only do what God's told you to do. But if you do something in faith, even if people see it, he said he's going to reward you. And great is your reward in heaven. Does anybody even know what that reward is? Now, don't be quick to answer. Yeah? I'm sorry? Yeah? I heard someone over here say the right thing. The answer is no. We're closing tonight with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Now, yes, the Bible talks about our reward in heaven is salvation, but there's more to it than that. The Bible says we're going to be joint heirs with Christ Jesus. The Bible says there's levels of reward in heaven. We could do a whole study for an hour just on the term reward and what the scripture says about rewards or the loss of reward. But for me to stand here tonight and tell you this is what the reward is, I'd be contradicting scripture. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul got a glimpse of it. He said, I'm not even allowed to talk about it. He wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that our present suffering is not worth being compared with the glory to be revealed. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this one, but I'm sure that some of you out there have probably tried to make a little money in the stock market. The Bible says, store up your reward in heaven. Store up your reward in heaven. And let me just tell you, one day, I hope that you and me both are blown away by what's in store. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.